Amen. Church family, would you take God's Word and join me in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30 this morning as we continue our march. Very slow march, by the way, through Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. As you're turning there, I want to maybe just ask, when you get there, can you let your eyes go back up to verse 20? Want to remind us of something that we've already seen together. I think it'll help us this morning in a lot of ways, those to in a lot of ways, though, to remember what Jesus said right before he enters into this section of drawing us into the heart of God's law. In verse 20 of chapter 5, you recall that Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not, that's emphatic, you will never enter the kingdom of God. So what we clearly understand in verse 20 as we move into this section of Jesus' sermon is that we, you, and I, we need a better righteousness then we can produce in ourselves if we are going to enter the kingdom of God. Because who among us, who among us has enough righteousness within us to overcome our anger and contempt toward others? How many of us, in light of what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, have enough righteousness in us That we get to a place where we are never angry with others, where we never treat people with contempt. How or who among us has enough righteousness in our hearts to prevent ourselves from at the end of verse 22 going into the fiery hell? Who among us has enough righteousness of our own to overcome the times when we do not reconcile relationships with one another as we saw in the text last week. No, beloved, the reality is that we need a better righteousness, right? And most specifically, what we need is not a better righteousness that we can generate in ourselves or that somehow the world could offer, but we need the better and the only righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. A righteousness that is not born of ourselves, but it is born of His holy, divine character. And church, by God's grace, if you are in Christ this morning, by God's grace, you right now, currently, presently, and will forever have that righteousness. That righteousness that has made you perfectly right before God. It has changed your standing before God as one who was guilty to one who was, to, to one who was now innocent. To, from one who was a child of wrath to now the child of God. That righteousness has made you holy before God. And now, in light of that righteousness, we seek now to live out 
the demands of the Gospel on our lives, who conform ourselves to what God has said to us in His Word. And I just start us here reminding of what Jesus has said in verse 20 because we come again this morning to another text where we are keenly reminded of how desperate we are for a righteousness not of our own. For a better righteousness to save us and then to help us to live out the demands of the Gospel. For this morning, we come to Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I know we just prayed a moment ago, but can I ask you to pray with me once more? Father, in light of this holy word, in light of this particular text, in light of some of the sensitive nature here, God, would you help us? Help us to hear, help us to see, help us to do, help me to communicate clearly, boldly. God, use your word for your good purposes till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Let me draw out two truths from this text for us this morning. Two particular truths. One in verses 27 and 28. One the other in verses 29 and 30. Here in verses 27 and 28, I think what we see clearly is that Jesus intends for our hearts to be pure. What Jesus intends is for our hearts to be pure. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said. So here's that formula again that we know Jesus is using in this section of chapter 5. You've heard it said, and that's going to point us back to something in God's law, and then He will follow that with, but I say to you, not to try to change or alter what the law has said, but to drive at clarity and to drive at the very heart of the matter. And what you have heard in verse 27 from the law of God is, you shall not commit adultery. Here, Jesus is referencing back, our minds begin racing back in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, repeated for us in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 18. This seventh commandment in the law of God, in the Decalogue, in these ten words, the ten commandments. And at that seventh command, very short, very succinct, very to the point, very clear, very unmistakable are these few short words, you shall not 
commit adultery. Now, I want you to maybe even go further back in your minds. I want you to go further back in the Old Testament. I want, you, I want us to go all the way back to the sixth day of creation. I want us to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 when God, as His final and crowning act of creation, when He creates people in His image. He makes mankind in His likeness. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, God creates two distinct but equal genders, male and female. Then in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, Genesis 2 verse 24, we find in those texts God's beautiful and glorious design for marriage. And what we find in those texts is that within that God-designed context of marriage alone, we see God's plan, will, and design for the expression of human sexuality. Marriage then, in light of what is being said by God in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, we begin to have an understanding early in Scripture. Early. Because the family will serve as the very foundation of all society, of God's plan for the world. Marriage then, we find, is that covenant one flesh union between one man and one woman. Marriage is intended, we know, to display God's love toward His people. Marriage shows publicly the covenant relationship that exists between the covenant maker God and His people. Marriage, as you make your way into the New Testament, in that Ephesians 5 text where we see this most clearly, marriage is a picture of what? It's a picture of Christ and His own relationship with His bride, the church. Therefore, the seventh commandment you shall not commit adultery. This is not up for debate. This is not up for question. This, by the way, it erases all vocabulary of, well, God just told me that somehow this would be okay. I am stunned, frankly. And I don't know that there's a ton that surprises me anymore, but I'm frankly stunned. When people who claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ use that language as if somehow that's going to serve as a sufficient end around for what God has so clearly said in His Word. You shall not commit adultery. Because, so many reasons, but primarily, adultery robs God of glory. Because adultery, it, it, it smears it mars the picture of the gospel that marriage is intended to represent. One of a faithful groom in a covenant binding eternal, until at least until death do us part, one flesh union. And adultery, when it enters into that moment, it mars the glory of God and it mars the beauty of of the gospel, therefore do not, you shall not commit adultery. 
And just to be clear, most specifically, when we see that word adultery in Scripture, it's speaking most pointedly about the sin of sex outside of God's beautiful design of one man, one woman, one flesh union. Adultery is the sin of taking what is meant for your spouse alone and giving that to another. It is the ripping apart of the one flesh union with your spouse and joining with another in another one flesh union. Most certainly by the time then that Jesus and His public ministry in this Sermon on the Mount, by the time that that comes around, one of the ideas surrounding this seventh commandment, one of the practices that is, if not taught explicitly, it is certainly meant implicitly by the scribes, the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, the idea had become something along the lines of this. Just so long as you don't commit the actual, literal, physical act of adultery, then you have not sinned. You're okay. Doesn't matter what else might be going on in your heart. Doesn't matter what uh, kind of other actions may be going along. Just so long as you don't go too far in this thing and commit the act of literal, physical adultery, you're okay. In our more modern day, I think there are many that go down a similar road of thought when they ask a question like, you know, how far can I go in an extramarital relationship before it is considered adultery? And here's the problem. Here's the problem with the Pharisees' teaching in the time of Jesus, here's the problem in that line of thought or questioning in our day. The problem is that that idea teaches the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, but it ignores the tenth commandment. It picks and it chooses which part of God's law will be acceptable to be obeyed by us. What do I mean by this? The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But do you remember how the Ten Commandments ends? In Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You cannot keep the seventh commandment while ignoring the tenth commandment because at the heart of every instance and act of adultery is a discontent, covetous heart. So then, this is why Jesus continues in verse 28. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Where the scribes and the Pharisees 
either glossed over or ignored the Tenth Commandment, Jesus drives right at the very heart of it to say, yes, absolutely, do not commit the act of adultery. But let's take a step back. Let's peel back a layer of this thing. Let's really look into our hearts and get to the heart of the matter, which is that of a covetous, lust-filled heart. Everyone then, he says in verse 28, who looks at a woman with lust for her. But by the way, we can also say that this is not just instruction to men about the way they look at women, but this is also an application to women about the way they look at men. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What does the word looks mean in verse 28? And I think this is really important that we understand what that word looks means. The idea here is that of an intent of a continual, ongoing, fixed gaze or stare. It's not a one-time glance. It's not just a person that walks by. It's not just an image that flashes. It is the ongoing, continual, fixed look. Look, the reality is that throughout the course of a day, A lot of times, you cannot help what flashes before your eyes. So what Jesus then drives at is not just addressing everything that we see, but the reality that sometimes what we do is we take the second look. Kent Hughes in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, he writes this to men, develop the discipline of never taking the second look. And that's the idea to which Jesus is driving at here. Do not fix your gaze on another woman. Because what is at the heart in verse 28? What is at the heart of this looking in verse 28? I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her. That word lust, it means to set one's heart upon something. And used in this context, it is always meant to set one's heart upon something sinful, illicit, and outside the lines. We we might be able to say that there are moments in our lives where we set our heart on really, really good things. More on that in a moment. But in this context, this idea is that of a fixed and longing, looking, staring, ogling for some sinful desire or purpose. It is to look in a way that sinfully and selfishly desires what is not yours and sinfully longs for that which God has not given to you. And in verse 28, look again, the object of this sinful lust is another woman, or ladies, another man. The object of the verse 28 lust is someone other than your spouse. And so then, putting it all together, what is forbidden for us in verse 28 is the fixed lust-filled gaze upon any other person, whether that person be literally physically in front of us, whether that person be on a television, tablet, 
or smartphone screen, whether that be some sort of thought or imagination of our mind. These lust-filled, intent-fixed gazes, they are forbidden. Because what is at the heart of every literal, physical act of adultery is a covetous, lust-filled heart. And listen, I would just remind us this morning that no one wakes up No one wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I think this is the day that I'm absolutely going to ruin everything. Nobody wakes up and says, you know what, I think this is the day I'm going to go out of my house and have an extramarital affair with another man, with another woman, and I'm just going to bring it all down today. I'm going to wreck my family. I'm going to ruin my children. I'm going to ruin my career. I'm going to ruin the testimony of the Gospel in me. I think today's a good day for that. Nobody wakes up and does that. That's never how it happens. How does it happen? You know how it happens. It happens by a thousand and then a thousand more lust-filled unrepented of gazes upon another. It happens by not crucifying every instance of covetousness in our hearts. It comes because we don't crucify every desire that is outside of the will of God for us. Literal, physical adultery happens because of a thousand covetous, lust-filled looks. And church, clearly then, in light of that, what Jesus wants from us, calls us to, I think we can even say demands of His disciples is a purity of heart in this area. This is always, by the way, it's always been God's call upon His people. God has always intended that His people be pure and holy. You might recall in Leviticus, and then it's repeated multiple times throughout the Scriptures. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 2, You, My people, God says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord God, am holy. God has always intended that His people brought to Him by His own covenant love, under the authority of His binding, eternal, holy law, that they walk in holiness, obedience, and purity, not just of action, but of heart. Why? Because God is holy. God is completely pure. God is completely other than us. He's not like us. He is separate and distinct from us. In our hearts, God demands purity. And as we turn the corner in just a moment to look at verses 29 and 30, uh, those verses help instruct us. How do we become practically pure? How do we become practically holy in this area of our life? But before we turn that corner, let me say one final thing here. That covetousness and lust, they arise in our hearts when? They arise in our hearts when we wrongly believe that there is a better pleasure outside of God and what He has given us. 
When we believe that there is something better outside of who God is and what God has done for us, when we believe that, a covetousness and an impure lust begins to build and grow in our hearts. Did God really say that in the day you eat from that thing, you're going to die? No, you're not going to die. God is just trying to keep back some pleasure from you. God is just trying to keep back something good from you. Go ahead and eat. You're not going to die. And Adam and Eve in that moment, if not even some moment before then, they believe that there is some pleasure, that there is some delight, that there is some good outside of God and what He has provided. And so a discontent, covetousness, and sinful lust builds in their hearts. And the whole world is cast under the curse. When you believe in your hearts that there is some pleasure out there that's better than God, that's better than what God has provided. When you believe that there is some pleasure out there that another person can give you, you will begin to then be filled with a covetous lust that drives you farther away from the goodness of God and deeper into the depths and death of sin. Church, hear King David in Psalm 16 and verse 11. Hear this. In your presence is fullness of joy and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You hear David in that, right? You hear God's Word in that. God, in your presence is fullness of joy. There there is no more joy to be found, to be had outside of God. And God, in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Eternal. Never ceasing abounding. As we seek to do the work of heart diagnosis in regards to this issue, ask yourself, Am I seeking to find joy and pleasure in something or someone other than God and what His right hand has provided for me? Jesus intends our purity of heart. But then secondly, verses 29 and 30, Jesus intends that we radically repent of sin. Jesus intends that we radically repent of sin. Verse 29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better You hear this? It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown 
into hell. Just for clarity's sake, Jesus is not teaching self-mutilation. He is teaching sin-mutilation. That's what Jesus is driving at here. He is driving at an intense, practical, purposeful, radical repentance of sin. A radical approach to dealing with those things that cause us to stumble. If then, verse 29, your right eye makes you stumble. Here, Jesus pointing to the things which we see. The things which fill our gaze. And therefore, the things that will help fill our hearts. If your right eye makes you stumble. The word stumble, there in verse 29, the word scandalizo. We get our word scandalize. Enter into scandal from that word. If what you see with your eye scandalizes you, brings you into a place of illicit scandal, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better. Please believe this, saints. It is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. This is violent language. I want you just to think about it. Without being graphic, think about what that might be or look like to actually tear out your eye and throw it from you. Jesus is intending to be intense here. He is intending for maybe there to be a, a gasp that arises like, uh, oh, uh. And just the very thought of that is, is almost too painful to think about. But this is the way in which Jesus calls His people to deal with their sin and the things that cause them to stumble. Tear it out. This is, this is an intent. It's almost like this, i got to get this out of me right now and get it as far away from me as I possibly can because it's killing me. It's killing me. Church, we cannot play with sin and stumbling blocks. You cannot. If you play with it, it'll own you. It'll consume you. It will absolutely kill you. And so Spurgeon said this, as only Spurgeon can, better a blind saint than a quick-sighted sinner. Better to be blind because you gouged your eyes out than to be a quick-sighted sinner. There is only one way. There are not many ways. There is only one way, beloved, in which we deal with sin and stumbling blocks in our life. And that is tear them out and throw them from you. If you are playing with sin this morning, especially, especially if that sin and stumbling block is of a sexual nature, I want you to hear the Proverbs. 
I want you to hear Proverbs 6, verses 27 and 28. Beyond that, I want you to go home and read the first seven chapters of Proverbs before you go to sleep tonight. But hear this. Can a man take fire in his bosom and not and his clothes not be burned? We know the answer to that question. If somehow we were able to gather up fire and, and, and hold it close, what would it do? It would consume. It would burn. It would hurt. It would destroy. Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? The obvious answer to that question is if you walk on hot coals, there's only one thing that's going to happen to your feet. Your feet are going to get scorched. And in Proverbs 6, the context of, uh, of that is that of sexual sin. Do you think that you can play with this kind of sin and it's not going to utterly burn you up and destroy you? If you think that, you are foolish. If you think that, you do not yet understand the gravity and the consuming nature of sin. You've got to take that sin, that stumbling block, and you've got to rip it out. You've got to go crazy fighting against your sin and throw it away. John Owen said this, No, that he that dares to dally with occasions of sin will dare to sin. What is Owen saying? If you play around with it, you're going to sin. That's what he's saying. If you don't kill it, if you don't crucify it, if you don't tear it out, if you don't throw it from you, you are going to sin in that way. At some point, it's going to catch up with you because you can't take fire to your bosom and not be burned. And so there's only one way to deal with it. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 6. Here's a little more about what this fight looks like. If you're in Christ, here's the instruction to you about sin. Romans 8, verse 6. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you, Christian, church, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are not under obligation, or we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. you got to put it to death. By the Spirit of God in you, 
that Spirit of God that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, you have got to make war against your sin. Or else, what does the end of verse 29 say? Your whole body will be thrown into hell. I want you to notice in verse 29, notice the double use of the word throw. Beginning of verse 29, if your right eye, offend, uh, right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. Into verse 29, better to do that than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. The choice is very simple actually. You can throw your sin from you or you yourself can be thrown into hell. That's how this works. You can fight and make war against your sin and throw it away from you or you can play with it and nurture it and foster it in the dark recesses of your soul but the one who has eyes of fire and revelation will see the truth of who you are and in that unrepentant, not following Christ state, your whole body will be thrown into hell. Again, John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The same Idea in verse 30, look there with me, if your right hand makes you stumble. In verse 28, or sorry, in verse 29, if what you see makes you stumble. Now in verse 30, if your right hand, if what you do makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. There's a, a story in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that perfectly illustrates the way that God intends for His people to fight against and deal with the sin among them. To deal with the sin in them. God comes to King Saul and tells Saul, I want you to go fight against the Amalekites and I want you to destroy them all. I don't want you to leave anyone or anything alive. I want you to, to wipe out the sin from the land. Leave nothing. Kill all the animals. Saul goes to war with the Amalekites and he leaves the king, Agag, he leaves him alive. Along with some of the best, the choicest of the sheep and the oxen. Samuel, after the war, Samuel, or after the battle, Samuel comes to him, and Saul runs out to greet him in verse 13 of that chapter, and he says, hey Samuel, man, I carried out the command of the Lord. I did what I was told to do. And in verse 14, Samuel replies, what then is this bleating of sheep and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Uh, Saul, by the sound of it, you didn't actually do what God told you to do. By the sound of it, you kept some things alive that God said to destroy. The end result of that story is that Samuel will go to Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and Agag will plead with him, hey, haven't we had enough? In verse 32 of that 
chapter. Haven't we had enough bloodshed? Isn't that enough for now? Samuel looks at him in verse 33 and says, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. That's a tough story. There's a lot going on there. Here's the point. There's only one way that God intends for His people to deal with the sin in their midst, and that is to hew it to pieces. If you're playing with sin, it's going to burn you. It's going to ruin your marriage. It's going to ruin your relationship with your children. It's going to ruin you if you do not kill the covetous lust within you. Tear it out, cut it off, and throw it from you. Church, in what area of your life, particularly as it relates to the sin of verses 27 and 28, what area of your life do you need to practice radical repentance? What stumbling blocks do you need to hew to pieces? What sin or stumbling blocks do you need to violently remove? Better to not have a smartphone than to go to hell. Better to not have internet or television than to go to hell. Better to remove temptation from you than to spend eternity in hell. Better to quickly cut off that relationship than to ruin your family, your husband, your wife, your kids. Better to quickly end that relationship than to go to hell. Sin is not worth it, saints. Kill it. Kill it. Please, I'm begging you. I have seen too much. You have seen and experienced too much. You already know its devastating consequences. Kill it. Kill it. You do in this area of your life what Adam should have done in the garden and praise God that the better Adam did come and do. You crush the head of that tempting serpent. And you do that with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me also say this. There is grace and there is forgiveness. For the sin of adultery, lust, covetousness, discontentment. There's grace. And there's forgiveness. Verses 27 and 28 are not the unforgivable sin. Here's the lie. If you're struggling in this area, here's the lie that you're hearing right now. I'm too far deep. It's too far in. I'm too far gone. It's over. And I'm telling you that's a lie. I'm telling you 
that's a lie from the very pit of hell. Because there's grace that is enough and there is mercy and there is forgiveness. Come to repentance today. Do that. The Holy Spirit of God, dear Christian, the Holy Spirit of God that is in you can give you victory over your sin. Do not say, I can't. If you're a Christian, you can't say, I can't overcome this by the grace of God. Because if you say that, then you are denying the very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. You can. You can mortify the flesh. You can kill sin so that it doesn't kill you first. Be in prayer. Be in the Word. Be in constant communication with your spouse. Be in constant accountability and communication to one another. And if God's Spirit is in you, the fruit of that Spirit will produce a self-control in you that will allow you to mortify these sinful desires. If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, there is one thing you must do this day. You must not try to do better. You must not try to fix this on your own. You must come to Christ. And I say must, and I hope you hear the severity of that. Because that is your only plea. He alone is your help. He alone is your righteousness. He alone is your Savior. He alone gives you access to a good and loving, gracious, merciful Father. You must turn from your sin. You must turn from your way of living your life. You must turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that, your soul will be at peace. And you will find that in all the ways that you've been trying to fulfill the lust of your soul, they will be completely filled in Christ. And those things that so consumed you before, bit by bit, day by day, they will begin to dim in your eyes and the goodness and the glory of Christ will fill your gaze and your longings and affections come to Him today. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, a, a deeply... Uh, uh, I got a deeply uh, intense, uh, personal text... God is here before us, bouncing around in our hearts and minds. Father, would You help Your people to not be consumed by discontent, covetous lust. Father, would You help Your people to know that in You there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. 
God, by Your powerful Spirit, Father, would You help Your people to put sin to death. God, help us as a church to be holy and pure in this area. God, I pray over every single person in this room that has been affected, whether directly or indirectly, by this particular sin. God, would You comfort, heal, protect. God, for those that are currently in the fight, oh God, help them today. Help them before, God, they walk down a road that will destroy them. God, would You protect the marriages of Faith Family Fellowship. Oh God, give us eyes and longings for our husband or our wife only. God, help us to see the beautiful gift of marriage for what it is, what it declares. And God, in every moment of temptation, may we see the Gospel that is better. And in light of what you, uh, who You are and what You have done for us in Christ, Oh God, that we would fight so hard against this sin. God, do Your work in our hearts for Your glory and our good. It's through Christ that we pray it. Amen.